I'm Erica Senor. And welcome to Brains and Bourbon, a show about cocktails and neuroscience brought to you by Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. Each week, we invite a neuroscientist to discuss the process and motivation behind their science and to share their favorite cocktail with us. This week, our guest is Viola Caretti, a postdoctoral researcher in Michelle Mangi's lab. Thank you for joining us this week, Viola. Thank you for having me. It's really exciting to be here. So, Viola, so normally we drink the same drink as our guests, but today we'll be drinking something differently from you. Um, so can you tell us what we're drinking first? Oh, yeah. So I, um, I brought for you some limoncello. Being Italian, I chose a typical liqueur that we have basically almost every night in the summertime, especially. Mm-hmm. So it's really a hallmark of summer, of summer in Italy. And I love, I love this drink. Okay, um, and, and what will you be drinking instead, um, and why? Uh, yeah, especially why. <laughs> I just actually love drinking. Um, I'm going to have some sparkling lemonade. <laughs> it's very nice. And yeah, and why? Because I'm actually at the fourth month of pregnancy, so I had to give up some of my wine and other liquor <laughs> love. <laughs> Congratulations. That's a pretty good reason to not drink limoncello. (laughs) Thank you. All right. So let's go ahead and and have a drink. Cheers. Cheers. Chin, chin. (laughs) We're using plastic cups today. (laughs) Oh, that's interesting. Really sweet. Yeah. So this is a, what kind of drink is this? So it's a liqueur? Yeah. Made Mm -hmm. with lemon. And with lemon. So... And actually, sorry, I should have said it before. Mm-hmm. Actually, we sip it. Oh, okay. So it's very strong. Yeah, it's very similar mm-hmm. in its, uh, its sort of texture, not texture, I guess viscosity to uh, the chartreuse that we had on the show before. So it's sort of a, a sweet liquor, high in alcohol content. <laughs> Super high in alcohol. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I guess some people use it also for shot, but it's really, like in Italy, it's really typical to have it at the end of a meal, mm-hmm. during a dinner. And then people just stay, you know, maybe on a terrace outside and you just talk and sip it, you know, slowly, mm-hmm. little by little. So that's sort of the... Of the idea. I loved yeah. when she when you brought out the bottle today. It was just like frosted. Yeah, it's pretty good. We actually keep it in the um, in, in the, the freezer, freezer. <laughs> <laughs> because it's super hot. So. <laughs> okay, so so you have a, a, a pretty interesting path to becoming a neuroscientist. Uh, so you're from Italy originally, and then you traveled around a bit. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the journey from when you started as a teenager, the the traveling that you did, and how you eventually ended up in neuroscience? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, So I did actually a whole bunch of traveling. Um, I started when I was 12, going a little bit around the world, well, especially in Europe. Um, I was working for an international organization. They were working for peace, Mm -hmm. and they were actually working with teenagers and children. I did a lot of these meetings, Uh and I was a painter back then. So the first, actually, my first trip I didn't speak a word of English, mm-hmm. and I was painting for some some books they were making, so made for children to discuss big environmental issues, mm-hmm. uh, so made by children for children, and that was uh, my sort of first experience. 
Um, so what kind of paintings would you do for this organization? Well, anything that was needed to illustrate various concepts. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, it could be about, you know, the lack of water in certain area of the world and, you know, like too much water in other yeah. area of the world. And I could interpret it and be extremely creative. Uh-huh. So other people would actually write the text. Uh-huh. But the idea was to involve as many children, as many teenagers as possible in sort of big issue. Um, so when you were that age, at, at 12, did you understand the issues or was it more... A learning experience for yourself as you were sort of trying to figure it out in the painting. Well, I guess... I guess part of it, so what I didn't say that the children were actually from all over the world. So I was Italian, mm-hmm. there were people from Africa, from the Americas, from Australia, from Asia. So we we're really coming from all over the world. Mm-hmm. So for sure there was a lot of exchange of information and the problem we were experiencing at home. That could be, a, you know, like simple being hungry. I mean, yeah. probably mm-hmm. the people that were coming, but they could see it in the daily life from having issues with, you know, like catastrophe, like big catastrophe or violence. It could be from really, really different prospects. And the fact that you are with these people and you discuss your normal daily life with other people that have a completely daily life, even if it's not a problem, but just, you know, daily, for sure. That was, uh, like, even if you were not aware before, then you would become aware mm-hmm. very, very soon. And it was, I think, a very interesting concept that were actually children And, you know, a teenager, even young adult. I mean, we went from, I think it was the youngest one. The first one was 11, 12. And then we were until 21, 22. That was sort of the range. And people were doing different things Mm -hmm. with with these editorial meetings. So So at the meetings, were there children present? Or was it for adults who were, you know, educating children? No, no, actually it was just children. It was just children, So okay. there were um, a couple of adults that were helping coordinating. Uh-huh. But for the rest, were all children. Also like cooking uh-huh. or like cleaning the house where we were, actually working. So I was painting. Other people were taking care of the text, uh, putting cool. the book together, working on the internet. We're all, wow. all wow. doing it by how, ourselves. How much, how much of the year was this taking up each year that you're doing this? Well, there were people that were actually based there. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were actually taking an internship mm-hmm. out. So they were there for like three or six months. Oh, wow. And then there was a big meeting that would mm-hmm. take three weeks. Mm-hmm. So I never stayed for the extended period. Mm-hmm. And actually those were the ones that were a little bit older, usually between 18 and 20. So they would do the mm-hmm. more of the core background work mm-hmm. and then there would be like this what is called it editorial meeting with more people being present mm-hmm. so how, how many years there. did you participate in this so i did that for some time i guess until i went to high school um so f- five years five wow. to six years wow. something like that and then i went back a couple of times because then i moved from italy uh, where I was participating all year long in other activity with the organization that was based in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I moved to England for my high school. Mm-hmm. So then I started to participate a little bit less and just go to some some bigger meeting once, uh, once a year. Okay, um, so that's a good segue to the next part of the question, mm-hmm. which is, so you went to England for high school. Yeah. So how did, that's not something that I think Americans are really familiar with going away to high school, with the exception of, you know, boarding school for a select few. Is that something that's common in Italy, or how did that happen? Yeah, so it was, I think it was a dream uh, that came true uh, 
because my mom and my dad wanted to do it when they were my age. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And my dad was too poor, and my mom was a girl, so she wasn't allowed to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so they sort of had this idea. So it's not a common, it's not a common thing. Some people do it. Mm-hmm. I guess it's much more common to come to the States mm-hmm. than to England. Mm-hmm. So I know people that came to the States for one year. Um, for high school, and then they came back to finish off high school. I don't know anybody else, apart the people that I meet, met in England, that actually did it. So it was um, quite a particular thing. It was sort of in the dream of my parents, and then they yeah. started talking about it. Mm-hmm. And I, yeah, it's one of these, I tend to do stuff sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it just come, I just uh. left. I still remember when I, the day I left, I didn't uh-huh. really realize I was really... I mean, of course, I knew it, but you're like fourteen, fifteen. Yes, super <laughs> young. So yeah. I, so did you go there to study anything like specific, or was it just a general high school education? Oh, so it was. I took part of the program. Like I was with English um, teenagers like mm-hmm. me, um, and you could actually choose your subject. So I did exactly the same program as all the other people did. Mm-hmm. And as a part of the of the program, you could pick a series of subjects. So I sort of make up, uh, I guess it's more similar to what you do in undergrad. Oh, I see. So okay. we had a couple of things we had to take, and the rest it was... Uh, you sort of create your major, basically. Yeah. yeah. So and at this point, were you interested in science, or are you looking more environmental, political career? Yeah, I guess it was a, a bit of both. Uh-huh. Um, but I think that that's when I started falling in love with science as well. I had an incredible teacher in biology, mm-hmm. and I started thinking, oh, maybe I really want to do medicine. I never thought about it before. Mm-hmm. I just enjoy so much the class, mm-hmm. and I enjoy so much biology, and I thought, oh, maybe I really want to do this. And the teachers were amazing because actually to do medicine, I needed to take some additional classes. So I had to drop out of, I don't know, I think anthropology and another. Mm-hmm. And I had to do chemistry. And the teacher were really supportive. They was like, oh, you should totally do it. They helped me. The chemistry teacher, she like spent hours to try to make me, you know, catch up with the class. Wow. Yeah. And that was, I think that was the most beautiful educational experience I had in terms of support of people around me. Yeah, that sounds pretty great. (laughs) Do you remember, is there something that you learned in biology that that sort of drew you towards that class or that, or or medicine? Oh, there were so many things. I was just fascinated by, I was fascinated by the human body especially mm-hmm. by the brain mm-hmm. and that's why mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that I did medicine with the idea to become a psychiatrist and a neurologist and I think that was the the start of the path mm-hmm. and then there was um, a particular day in which we did a section of a, uh, of a fish um, and then I I remember I I, I was holding the um, the heart of the of this fish in my hand and it uh-huh. was it was beating of course <laughs> as a muscle and yeah the moment was like okay this is this is too fascinating yeah. <laughs> it's, it's hard I, to hold a beating heart in your hand and not be affected by that in a significant way I think <laughs> one way or another <laughs> yeah. but yeah I think that was really the moment that. Um, that I decided. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and then you, when you finished high school, you decided to go back to Italy for, 
for undergrad, which I guess in Italy is medical school? Yeah, so that's the, that's the difference. In Italy, you go directly from, in Italy and in Europe, you go directly from um, high school to medicine. Mm -hmm. We don't have the undergrad in between. Or you go to law school, so you already decide in which direction you go. And yeah, I guess I was so young at the time that I really felt like I had to go back home. I really missed Italy. I mm -hmm. really missed my friends, my family, although I had a fantastic experience. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a tough decision because <laughs> when I got back to to Italy, it was it was a shock for me to go back. I've been yeah. in such a different culture for so long. And it seems like almost your whole life you've been traveling, so it's like... <laughs> yeah. Actually, sometimes I think about it, and it's, it's really true. I'm really Italian, yeah. in and out, I think. <laughs> I'm really, I feel so Italian. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I've been abroad for really a long time. Yeah. Sometimes it even surprised me. Because especially in Italian culture, we're so attached to the family, you know, even to the house. We don't want to move from our own mm -hmm. home. It's, mm -hmm. you know, it's, uh, it's very hard. So, uh, yeah, it's... Um, so you went back. So I, I went back and, uh, I mean, maybe regret is a big word to say. I mean, I love being back home. Mm -hmm. uh, what it was difficult for me was Madison. Uh, was, it was a painful experience. <laughs> Why is that? <laughs> because, I mean, in England, they, they really encourage us to explore everything we're passionate about. Classes were amazing. Mm -hmm. They were really, um, you know, they were really there for us. And there was this whole fascination about learning anything. I mean, apart from biology, what I was doing, you know, we had amazing teacher there was this whole this whole passion for so many different things yeah. you know you could develop so many talents and then I went back to Italy I did medicine I thought I would have ended up in class with what they wanted to save the world you know and change the world and it was <laughs> it was really it was really severe. It was a professor. We were all seated in you know in our chairs. I don't know if you've ever seen old Italian movies with actually children in elementary school with their wooden desk. It was mm. it was the same and the professor was talking, talking and you just had to repeat exactly what they would say. Yeah. And um there was no space for, you know, creativity but Creativity in all the sense, you know, trying to to go a little bit more, you know, a little bit more in depth than just a few pages of the book. Mm -hmm. um, and I I stopped studying. I remember the first year to quit on myself. Okay, and I started doing a bajillion of other things. Although that was my, I mean, it's still my passion. I'm still trying to go back to the hospital. Uh -huh. I really. Um, I really love it. I think it's uh, it's amazing to have the opportunity to study medicine, but it really, I was really fa feeling like I was in a prison. It was yeah. super <laughs> difficult. It was really yeah. difficult. So then what other things did you start doing you know, to distract yourself, I guess, yeah. you would say? So that's when I started doing theater, actually. Yeah, I did a lot of that. And then I think it, it saved me because it really allowed me to really bring out um, my personality to I, I loved it I fell in love with theater I just started mm -hmm. because I wanted to start a new thing I just wanted to try and do something that was different than studying and use a, a different part of my brain yeah um, 
but that it really became another word. I think I had the same impact with theater that then later on I had with research. It was oh, interesting. Really, mm-hmm. For me, it was the same. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know this was that. <laughs> Why nobody told me. <laughs> so do you still have the opportunity to do theater? Yeah, so I've done it. Actually, um, I've done it um, quite a lot. I mean, I did the most in Italy because actually I was in a school. Uh-huh. So I actually follow a program. Um, and then when I moved to Amsterdam, I did some. And then when I moved here, it was one of the things that amazed me about Stanford because there's so much connection between the various departments. It's really easy to go to any department and say, hey, I'm really interested in this. Yeah. <laughs> can I come? <laughs> it's really, can I just join in? Um, it's so easy here. It's extremely easy. So, of course, I came and I started looking around and there is a theater and performing arts department, dance mm. department. Mm. And I was really surprised by how welcoming they, they were. So I've done a couple of performances also here. Oh. Now I had to stop because I have to take my exam. That is one of the things that I for sure enjoy greatly about Stanford. It's so dynamic. Uh-huh. It's really so dynamic. There is so much going on. So many people that want to do different things in different areas yeah I think that's the thing I love the most about Stanford yeah because I mean coming from Europe you do a PhD a whole bunch of people like the idea is okay I have to do a postdoc in the United States especially a top institution like this and I would say that the biggest difference is really that. I mean, apart all the knowledge that you have around and instrumentation, technology, of course. But if I think about my previous institution, which I loved, by the way, I really mm-hmm. loved being there. Mm-hmm. Actually, being at Stanford, I think, is the attitude. Yeah. I was expecting more being a matter of money and, you know, possibility to do experiment and, you know. And of course, there is a part of that, but the attitude of people, the dreams, the idea they have, mm-hmm. they, also the way they treat you, I think that's what makes a difference. It's yeah, really positive. Think. Sometimes I think about it as like a box full of optimists. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a natural pessimist, and I'm always like, oh my God, these people just think they do everything. I guess that's pretty cool. I'm um, sorry, so you were saying your previous institution. So after you finished medical school, you were somewhere else to do a PhD or research? Yeah, so I, um, I went to Amsterdam, actually, for my PhD. Mm-hmm. Um, so why did you decide to yeah. pursue a PhD after getting your medical degree? Yeah, so that was a coincidence. I didn't know much <laughs> much about research. Uh-huh. Um, in Italy, it's extremely hard. So if you do biology, um, you actually get to go to the lab. And it's easier, of course. It's more in your you know, realm of possibilities. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're a doctor, you do research. But it tends, I mean, it's also hard to do that. But it tends to be clinical research. Uh-huh. Um, and going to the lab, it's not something that is offered like here on a silver yeah. platter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really... It's it's not it's not a possibility that is so readily available. And then I went to Amsterdam because I did an Erasmus, is something you don't have here in the States. So these are basically programs in between two institutions mm-hmm. and you are sent as a student to this other institution to study or to do other things and then other students are sent to your own institution. Uh-huh. Like an exchange. Yeah, like I an see. exchange. And so I really wanted to go abroad, of course, because uh-huh. <laughs> you love Italy so much, right? 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I for sure, want, I didn't want to go away from Italy, but from my <laughs> from my university, yes, I was like, yeah, a possibility to get hell out of here. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going. <laughs> um, and then it was, I so I, I actually decided to do research, mm-hmm. and I just I just fell in love with it. Uh, for me, it was another revelation. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. I had an incredible mentor there. And I, and actually, the, the funny thing is that even when I went to Amsterdam the first time, I did still clinical research. Mm-hmm. Um, so I still didn't put, you know, a step into the lab. But then yeah. I decided to do a PhD and I went back. And it was actually a coincidence again that I ended up in a lab because I applied for PhD and I actually turned down, I think, two offer for PhD in, in labs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in the end, I got the the third uh, the third one, because in the advertisement for the job position, my my old PI actually wrote in vivo work, and uh-huh. for me, in vivo work at the time meant with patients. Uh-huh. So I thought, oh great, <laughs> I can do both <laughs> with patient and work in the lab. This is perfect for me. <laughs> and then I arrived at the job interview, and you know, and Tom, my old PI, actually asked me, so you know. Have you ever done work with uh, with mice? And I was like, mice. <laughs> I actually never even thought about it. But it was so enthusiastic. I haven't done it, but I'm totally open to it. I can learn. No problem. <laughs> so that was the beginning of it. And then actually I saw more mice than patients for sure in the last years. Many uh-huh. more. So. So, so what were you studying um, in your PhD? Uh, so actually, it's the same um, topic I'm I'm studying right now with mm-hmm. uh, with Michelle here at Stanford, and the lab was working on gliomas and in general pediatric and adult malignancies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then my topic became very very special. It was, so it was a subset of that, mm-hmm. um, and it's called so it's a particular tumor that occurs in children. And it's called diffuse intrinsic pontine glioma. So okay. Can you uh, sort of step by step explain what that is for our <laughs> listeners? Yeah, <laughs> of course. It's just very even the name is very. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so actually, it's the um, is the single worst cancer, uh, brain cancer that a child can get. Mm-hmm. Is very malignant, um, and it occurs in a very specific area of the brain, which is the brainstem. Mm-hmm. And in particular, uh, the pons, mm-hmm. so a part of the brainstem. Um, and it occurs in a very specific age as well, so in childhood, and particularly between 5, 6, and 10 years mm-hmm. uh, old. And the, um, I would say the amazing aspect of this tumor is that it spreads. So it starts in this very specific area, and then in most of the case, it spreads throughout the brain. So um, it shocked me when I saw it in the brain of these uh, of these children, uh, but I have to say even neuropathologists or neurosurgeons, because fortunately this tumor is not very common. When they see it, they are also surprised. When I give presentation, they're also mm-hmm. surprised. Oh, really? And they can't believe how much it spreads. So uh-huh. glioma, it's it's already known in adult to spread a lot. Actually, is one of the the biggest challenge in treating gliomas in general, brain tumors, when mm-hmm. they're malignant, they spread so much. But these, 
it almost look, uh, I would say, quote, word like an infectious disease. Mm-hmm. It really goes, it really travels. Oh, well, we don't know if it travels, <laughs> actually. We have different hypotheses now. But it, it let's say, it starts to emerge in really different areas of the brain. So mm-hmm. is this what you would call metastatic? Or like in terms of the spread, or is it something different? Yeah, so it's still within the brain. Uh-huh. So uh, it's called like very infil- infiltrative behavior. It's very huh. invasive. Mm-hmm. But um, and maybe, I mean, and this is my personal opinion. <laughs> so it's still not, it's something we're studying. It's still not, uh, it's still not proven. There are not studies out there. But um, let's say I personally stand to wonder whether it is really, you know, like the cells that manage to migrate that far or if um, there is something else that determines this tumor to emerge in different area. But in the end, I mean, it's actually it's the same as for glioma from other tumor. We so the two ideas, so what you were just saying then is that it's possible that, you know, you have let's just say a genetic mutation or something, and it starts in the pons in this one part of the brain stem, and then it eventually emerges in other parts of the brain, or that those cancer cells in the brain stem are able to travel by some means to other parts of the brain. Those yeah. are the two ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But it goes so far that you can start in the brain stem, and it can even, I mean, it's found even in the frontal cortex, occipital mm-hmm. lobes. So it really, I mean, like spread I mean like yeah. it doesn't spread more just because it's confined within the the skull it's, uh-huh. it's really amazing where it is where it can it can be found but we know it actually started from uh, from the the pawns because in the majority of cases when once the child is diagnosed in the clinic you see that the mass is there uh-huh. but of course we don't know if at the time of diagnosis there are like smaller you know, in other parts of the brain, yeah, uh-huh. cells that are starting to proliferate. That's so. That's is there something that. particular about this brain area where why you get such a specific growth of the tumor there as opposed to any other part of the brain? Because the the you call it a glioma, so this is cancer cells of glia, which are yeah. the other cell type besides neurons, right? And so yeah. those are everywhere in the brain. So yeah. why do you only get these tumors, or at least why do they originate in the in the brain stem? Yeah, so that's the million-dollar question. Mm-hmm. I would love to know it. <laughs> so and that's, that's actually why I came to, to Stanford. Mm-hmm. So we really don't know much about this tumor because nobody studied it before mm-hmm. five or six years ago. So as far as I know, I'm the first PhD on this topic. Oh, wow. So maybe the other people did part of it. But they, I mean, now it really started. So there are groups all over the world that are studying it and we're really uh-huh. making progress. Uh, but before then... I mean, when I started, I didn't even know who to go and ask to. I didn't know of any other researcher, any other lab in the world wow. that was actually studying it. Uh-huh. Um, although there were people that were actually studying at the same time, we just didn't know about each other. So uh-huh. there was like Michelle here at Stanford and other people in the world that were doing it. So we really, there was not much literature out. I mean, there was a lot out in terms of clinical trials, but nothing in terms of preclinical research. Mm-hmm. And so we knew it was originating in the brainstem in this particular age, uh, but we didn't know why. Mm -hmm. But it's so striking that it originates there, especially because if you're a child and you get a tumor in the brainstem, but just in an area that is a few millimeters away, 
So if you just get it a little bit more posteriorly or even more, especially if you get it in the midbrain, mm-hmm. um, which is really close to the pons, it's attached mm-hmm. to the pons, mm-hmm. actually the likelihood mm-hmm. that you get a benign tumor, which has a very good prognosis, is extremely high. Huh. In the same in the same age group, mm-hmm. so although it was not the topic of my thesis or so my PhD studies, I had to concentrate in another another direction. I keep on thinking about that. Mm-hmm. It's, uh-huh. it's like there must be something mm-hmm. in this in the microenvironment of the ponds, especially of the basis of the ponds, that actually facilitate this this tumor growth there must be something there must be something i'm really obsessed with that Uh Mm -hmm. and that's actually the reason why um i i came to stanford uh michelle published the paper um, michelle manji that's your yeah sorry yeah michelle manji my vi um she published a paper actually was the first i would say breakthrough paper Uh on on the epg on the topic um, and it wasn't specifically about the microenvironment, but it was start to investigate the putative cells of origins for this tumor. Uh-huh. Um, and I remember reading it, and I was like so fascinated. It was so interesting that I wanted to meet her, and then I met her, and she was interested in the same to explore sort of the same path that I I was interested in exploring. So the microenvironment, trying uh-huh. to understand what is that is out there that actually kind of facilitate this uh, this tumor growth okay mm-hmm. so you're here now in michelle's lab studying this so how how are you studying it what are what are the tools that you're using and and how are you addressing this issue yeah so um part of um part of the microenvironment so part of this hypothesis also i'm sure that is not just uh, just that is to try figure it out um, whether actually physiological or non-physiological neuronal firing mm-hmm. may um, facilitate this this tumor growth. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, of the genetics was actually um, invented also at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So it's a, it's, a, it's an incredible technique that. Um, that I think revolutionized neuroscience uh-huh. and uh, it allows scientists to manipulate neurons <laughs> and uh, um, induce them to fire with uh, extremely, with a very high precision, both anatomically and they're really interested uh-huh. and um, uh, in a precise temporal way. So we're using this technique uh-huh. to, to investigate that. So we have animals model with the, with the tumor Mm-hmm. Uh, so these are immunocompromised mice where, where we can inject these tumor cells and have this tumor to grow. Um, and then they also uh, can be uh, manipulated. So actually we can activate particular neuronal circuits within these mice because they express channel rhodopsin. Uh-huh. So, so they have this particular light-sensitive um, ion channel that can be open activated by shining particular wavelengths of light uh-huh. uh, in this case we use blue light so we shine this light with fiber optics 
in the area we're interested in stimulating, then the, uh, this channel dopsin basically open up in a very simple way. There is this flow of ions flowing in. You have the polarization, and then we can induce uh, neuronal firing. Uh-huh. So the tumors that you're studying are glial cells. So it's a different type of cell from these neurons, which are inducing firing in using the channel dopsin. So what makes you think there's an interplay there? Yeah, so actually that's the, um, that would be the link. So the idea is to figure it out whether there is something in the microenvironment beside the tumor itself that actually influence the tumor growth. Uh-huh. So when, when, apart from the EPG and gliome in general, usually people really focus in studying the cancer cells. So the idea is, at least if you go towards therapeutics, is how can we target the cancer cells or cancer stem cells, this big, um, big field as well. So uh-huh. the type of cells that you can actually target with therapeutics, you want to target the, the cells that actually give rise to the tumor. And a lot of people concentrate in focusing on the cancer cells. Yeah. But, and I'm not saying that's not important. <laughs> I'm saying it's super important. Um, the question, so this is all started because we start wondering whether there is also um, microenvironmental influence. So is that just the tumor or is that also, you know, because of what surrounds the tumor that yeah. is part of What kind of, of neurons are there and how yeah. they behave? That's I mean, that's thing. A, a part of it. I think uh-huh. there are also other important players, but that's for sure the, the part, at least a part of the project that I'm, I'm working on in uh, Michelle's lab. Uh-huh. So to go, maybe to make it a little bit more clear, um, so Michelle figured it out that the putative cells of origin for the IPG may be an precursor cells or oligodendrocyte precursor cells. Uh-huh. And actually there have been other papers coming out in the last year. And even now, actually, we're discussing a paper mm-hmm. even today, um, a journal club, where there is more and more evidence that this seems to be the cells of origin for different type of brain tumor. Uh-huh. And our, so these would be the stem cells that will eventually become a type of glial cell. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so the cells that are transformed or may be transformed, uh-huh. um, so become malignant and acquire the ability to proliferate without control. Uh-huh. So basically, the, the biggest problem with tumors is that they just grow without control. Mm-hmm. And at a certain point, they just destroy what's normal around them. So it's not... I, was, I mean, they're not bad themselves. The challenge is that they keep on growing and uh-huh. they, you lose the normal function of your of your tissue. Then there is invasion and you just get to destroy what makes up our health and normal functioning. Uh-huh. So that's the, that's the challenge. So for sure, these are the cells um, that we think give origin. So that somehow start proliferating or induce other cells to proliferate. So uh-huh. this feels start to become very complex. <laughs> so either th- themselves or induce other cells to proliferate without being able to to stop basically uh-huh. and create then the, all the damage that tumor can create. So is so, is there an, the also um, the sort of opposite effect? So you're sort of looking at you know what does the neurons behavior? How does that affect the tumor growth? Does the tumor growth also affect how the neurons fire and those properties and how the brain itself functions? Yeah. So the tumor for sure influences how the brain functions. That we we know it. We know it very well from uh, mm-hmm. from the clinic. Um, and there could be, there could very well be that there is an intertalk between um, neurons surrounding the tumor and the tumor itself. Uh-huh. That part we haven't studied yet. 
what we know for now is that physiological, so I'm talking about physiological neuronal firing, uh-huh. like what's going on in, you know, in our brain, in my brain while I talk. Uh-huh. Um, it seems, although we studied in the motor area, so we studied a specific area of the brain that controls motor function, it does influence um, the proliferation of cells. Mm-hmm. So we found already that it's true that if you actually have, compared to control mice, if you make, so we make uh, via optogenetics, we use these mice to keep on circling. Mm-hmm. So we induce them to have um, a motor response. Um, and we know that these mice, they basically circle much more than the other ones that are controlled, that they are genetically identical. They just don't express the channel rhodopsin. Uh-huh. So mm-hmm. they don't respond to our stimulus to basically walk. They, so the mice that do are induced to, to walk and have the tumor show an increased proliferation of, uh, of the tumor cells. Uh-huh. So, and, and the idea actually came about because we, we just published a paper and this was, done, was a study done within the normal physiological development of the brain actually demonstrated that um, neuronal firing induced proliferation of normal OPCs, the, the cells that actually make up the myelin of the neurons. So uh-huh. there is this physiological circuit going on. So it's a normal so, function that sort of becomes, makes the abnormal situation worse when yeah, there's a tumor there. That's uh-huh. what we think. So that was the first study. And then we, we wonder, is that possible that that, you know, applies that this mechanism that is physiological mm-hmm. actually um, applies also to a dysfunctional situation like in the tumor. Uh-huh. I think this is really true, mm-hmm. that actually the microenvironment around the tumor that actually have its normal function uh-huh. uh, going on may have a huge influence on, uh, on the way this tumor develops. And of course, the idea is that then we can exploit the normal function and this type of interaction, of course, trying to leave mm-hmm. the, the physiological function intact, but the, to target the dysfunctional mechanism going uh-huh. on between what is the tumor growth uh, and input from the mm-hmm. microenvironment. So that's a really interesting idea that, that this increased firing induces actually growth of these new stem cells. Yeah. What, what, so on the normal situation, is this some kind of plasticity? Is it why, why do we do that, you would think? Yeah. So the idea, and that's actually what, uh, what, we already, what the lab already published mm. and it's out there, is that it's a uh, plastic. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, that there is plasticity and an importance for developing circuits. So the idea would be, okay, I need to learn to do a particular motor function. I need to learn to do something new. And then, you know, the neurons start firing. Then you get the OPC to proliferate and give rise to more myelin so that you have, like, reinforcement uh-huh. of the circuits. To make other so that's existing it. neurons stronger? Yeah, uh-huh. exactly. So you mentioned earlier that this, this cancer, this disease is specific for children or is, is worse in children. So, um, I mean, learning continues throughout a person's life. Was it so severe in children as compared to an adult? Yeah, so just to, I would like to make just uh, to make it a little bit more precise what I said. So what sure. I just described uh, for now, we actually studied in pediatric glioma, uh-huh. but not in the IPG. And we didn't demonstrate yet that the mass itself really grew much faster. So we haven't done any chronic study. Uh-huh. We just demonstrated the cells proliferate more in a very acute situation. Okay. Just to be precise sure. in, in what I'm saying. I mean, we no, will do yeah. additional study afterwards. So I, it's really hard to make conclusions. We just know 
know that the tumor cells for now do response to an uh-huh. arrow firing. That's mm. what that's what we know. And why I really would like to be able to answer that. I mean, I really want to be able to answer that. Yeah. And that's why mm-hmm. we're doing these old studies. So it's much more aggressive in children. And that's very particular because, I mean, tumors is always terrible to, mm-hmm. to get tumor. It's always terrible diseases. Uh, but children tend to do overall better than adults when they get a tumor. Uh-huh. The prognosis tend to be better. Uh-huh. And and just to give an idea, so if you talk about adult glioma or glioblastoma, it's a very deadly disease, but at least you have a five-year survival. So mm-hmm. you think, okay, there is taut amount of chances that you're going to survive for five years. For the APG, there's no there's no statistic for that because there's no survival for wow. five years. So the, mm. the majority of children really die within the first year from diagnosis. It's so fast. Mm-hmm. So I am I'm really sure that there is something within the normal development that really helps these children, but we don't know yet. And I hope, I hope we're going to figure it out soon. So mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of important studies that are doing all over the world. I think a lot of other labs are focusing on the genetic background of this tumor, so uh-huh. really trying to identify particular mutation and also, you know, to treat them. Our lab also does that, so we're doing also we're also focusing on uh, novel therapeutics, mm-hmm. but there is a lot of focus also on the microenvironment, mm-hmm. and I do think that both these line of studies are very important. But I think, especially for the IPG. It's super important to understand what's going on in the brain of these children at a particular age mm-hmm. that actually can really facilitate this tumor growth. So I think we'll need both. And my impression, and of course, I'm just talking about my <laughs> personal opinion here, uh-huh. but I think that although it is specific, is a specific type of tumor in this in these children, doesn't affect adults. I think that if we keep on with this line of research, trying to understand what there is in the microenvironment, this is going to ultimately really help out also other type of cancer. I mean, uh-huh. I personally believe that a lot of type of cancer actually are facilitating their growth that we actually can target and, you know, instead of thinking, okay, how can we kill the cells? How mm. can we potentiate, you know, the environment? Uh-huh. Uh, or ca- how can we act on the interface between what the normal function and the normal tissue and the normal cells do and the tumor cells do? I think that's going to be a key in uh, in treating this disease. Mm-hmm. So do you yeah. do you want to continue studying this? I mean, what is your plan after you finish your postdoc here? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to give it up. <laughs> no, I am um, Yeah, I I mean, I would love to find a cure. It's not that I have to find a cure. I just mm-hmm. would like that you know, I would love a cure to be found yeah. by me by another person. I don't care. <laughs> and of course, I mean, like for every big uh, big challenge in in science in the world in general, you need a lot of people working yeah. together and then you know like you you find the solution <laughs> uh-huh. thanks to to the work of hundreds of people so um, for sure i would love to to keep on i feel a very big commitment towards it i think it, this is especially because of my personal experience because i started as a phd mm-hmm. and when i started actually there was no material to study so i had to do a phd without having no tumor in paraffin blocks. Well, <laughs> of course, no cell line. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm like, okay, what am I going to do now? <laughs> so, <laughs> 
it was uh, it was sort of challenging. And then I um, I was okay. We have to do something. My PI in the beginning suggested to study other you know other type of gliomas. Uh-huh. But I so my the, the money for my PhD was donated by a family that lost their kid. Uh-huh. So I really didn't want to give it up. And then during my PhD with the people from the clinic and another PhD, we developed um, an autopsy study mm-hmm. so that it was possible to actually collect material and develop in vitro and in vivo model. And um, I really got in contact with the family. So it was, for me, it was a very, it was a really touching experience because mm-hmm. it was really the parents and sometimes even uh, children themselves that would contact us. Wow. Mm. Yeah, that was, uh, that was, yeah. <laughs> it, it really, it really happened. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's so much. Did the children, did they understand that they, they weren't going to survive and they just wanted to help find a cure for other children? Wow. So it happened. So this was in particular, there was a, um, a case in Amsterdam. It was a, uh, it was an older child. He was 12. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, uh, he got to hear about our research um, thanks to this foundation of this family. So this family, they lost her, her child before I started my PhD. And they started a foundation that would help family in the same situation. Mm-hmm. And they really uh, advertised it a lot as well so people could get contact, in contact with them. So he got to, to know about us, about our research, and he literally called us up. Wow. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think really when people trust you that much because it's an incredible, I mean, donating either your own brain or the brain of your child, it's, in, I mean, I cannot think of uh, something yeah. more generous. It's yeah. really, and, and it's really the whole family. I mean, I, I also been to the house um, of this child, you know, when the child was actually, that was going to, to get the, the corp. To, to be able to do that autopsy uh, uh-huh. fast. And there was the entire family there, you know, with all the sister, brother, the uncle, aunt, and they all ask you questions mm-hmm. and you wish you would have, you know, actually you wish before it happened that you had an answer and you could actually do something. And mm-hmm. then they're trusting you and they're trusting you a lot. Of course, to help is mm-hmm. on you, but it's because then you, they hope you're, you're going to do something. And there's not going to be other people having the same experience. So I think that generated a huge a huge commitment in me and in other people that yeah. have worked with me. Um, I think that makes it, it's, um, it's, it's a tough experience, but it makes it also more real. So mm-hmm. apart from the intellectual challenge that you want to understand why, I, mean, I think mm-hmm. a lot of scientists have. I I also love to understand why, <laughs> just mm-hmm. in general, it's like there must be a solution, there must mm-hmm. be an answer. Then you also get in contact with the um, with the reality of it, and then you I don't know I found a lot of I really committed myself. Yeah. So, uh, but I and I think I mean it's not to be again overly <laughs> positive, but it's, I mean this is the worst pediatric brain cancer, but mm-hmm. nobody studied it before. And yeah, that's group. very surprising. So why mm. did it, why did it go ignored for so long? Do you know why? Oh yeah, because there was no material to study. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, pretty simple answer. <laughs> so, so is it getting yeah. bigger and more people studying it now? It's a much yeah. Field. Yeah. So actually, what happened is that they stopped. So the 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 problem started because the, with the advent of MRI imaging, they they could have a pretty. Um, 
you know, like be pretty sure with the diagnosis of the IPG. Mm -hmm. And they knew that operating this tumor is absolutely doesn't make any sense to actually debulk the tumor because it doesn't save the, the child. Mm -hmm. So they stopped doing so since the MRI were available in the hospital, they start to be available 20, 30 years ago. Uh, gradually surgery stopped for these for these children uh -huh. so there was no material coming in in the lab so while we made a lot of progress in other diseases right when you know lab would start the technique uh, culturing of cells a whole sort of things started to develop uh -huh. and we start to you know find some relatively good or potentially good therapeutic for some type of of cancer at least so the prognosis start to become much better mm -hmm. at least for a subset uh, the EPG stayed the, the same and that was uh, the problem like almost uh, like because people gave up on it a little bit I guess yeah so I think it was a double so I think it the problem was also that there were no funding so yeah. it was much easier still much easier to get funding for big cancer like yeah. you know like breast cancer that affects many more people and I really think that the that the the impact on the research was due to the families for all this foundation mm -hmm. that really started to raise money and quite incredible amount and and this is happening all over the world so they start donating money uh, to you know to different to different institution to different lab so lab started to have some resources to actually study the disease mm -hmm. at the same time and I mean really in the last few years autopsy protocol started to develop and that also was considered a challenge because how do you ask a parent? Right. It's not had a horrible loss. Yeah. Um, so not easy as mm -hmm. well. So I think it was together like this incredible force from the parents foundation to, you know, to raise money and to donate them and then raising awareness. So like I think until 2010, um, there is a big international meeting on uh, pediatric neuro-oncology. Nobody was talking about this disease. Now there is an, an entire session dedicated wow. <laughs> just to this disease. And it's just in a few years. And there's been quite a lot of progress made. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I really think, I, I mean, maybe saying a cure is too much, but I'm, I'm pretty confident that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be better soon because there is really a lot of energy and a lot of effort put uh, mm -hmm. throughout the world. So so do you see yourself going back into the clinic then, or do you want to stay you know, primarily as a researcher? Yeah, so my dream is to do both, uh -huh. actually, because I really love both. And I really miss the clinic. So I did my PhD. Of course, I always had a contact with the clinic because it was, it was, I was always involved, but I wasn't, I wasn't a practicing doctor uh -huh. anymore. I mean, I just been a student, basically. I graduated and I went into uh, being a PhD and then a postdoc. And I always had this idea of going back. And actually, here in the United States, it's quite a normal figure, the mm -hmm. researcher and the clinician. In Europe, is not like that at all. I hope it's going to change. So either you're a doctor or you are a researcher, API. So that really opened my eyes. So the possibility, oh, I can really get to do, it's a dream, of course. It's not easy. Yeah. But I can really do both. So I'm, I'm at the moment studying for, for doing the, um, the board examination that all the medical students do here. Uh -huh. So although I have my title, 
I need to do the same exam. It's called uh, USMLE, uh, step mm -hmm. one and step two. So I'm studying for those and I hope to apply maybe next year, mm -hmm. hopefully next year, <laughs> if I manage to squeeze in everything. Yeah. <laughs> Plus the new baby, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Any busy time. <laughs> and, and to start again and then to be able to, to do it. But that's the amazing thing about United States, that it is challenging to do both, but it is at least within the system. It is a possibility right. to do that. So there is a lot of clinicians, even people that didn't do a PhD, but they get you know, a chance, especially during fellowship, to do research. So I would love, would love to do both because I love both. Well, great. So I think it's time for the game. What do you right. think, Ada? I think so. All right. So we have a game that we play on, on the show called Not My Field. Um, and so basically we'll read you three titles of scientific papers. One of them is a real published paper published in a peer-reviewed journal, and the other two we made up. And so your job is to tell us which is the real paper um, oh. <laughs> and which is the, the made-up papers. All right, so do you want to read the first one, Ada? Sure. So these each have a theme. So round one, the theme is food or overthinking it. I guess that's overthinking about your food. <laughs> sure. All right, so first choice is A. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, but the pear does. Effects of shape and weight distribution on falling fruit aerodynamics. Okay. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> These are very sophisticated. <laughs> B. Severity of peanut allergy negatively correlates with the consumption of peanuts and other legumes. Um, and then C, quantification of pizza baking properties of different cheeses and their correlation with cheese functionality. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> we work very hard. <laughs> <laughs> so the peanut butter seems more plausible, mm. um, but I actually really love the first one. Really? About the apples and the pears. Ah. <laughs> that would be really interesting. It's a very, <laughs> yeah, Newtonian type of question. <laughs> All right, so your final answer is A? Hmm. She's not sure. Oh. <laughs> okay, let's pick A just to say I hope that that's it. <laughs> okay. All right. So I'll read from the abstract of the, um, the real answer, which is, the aim of this study is to quantify the pizza baking properties and performance of different cheeses, oh, including really? the browning <laughs> and blistering, and to investigate the correlation to cheese properties, rheology, free oil, transition temperature, and water activity. I didn't know cheese was so complicated. I know, right? <laughs> uh, which journal? Uh, journal. Journal, journal of, of Food Science. Oh, that makes sense. Science. Yeah. I guess that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> Conference on Food Science. Okay, so uh, you want to take round two, Eric? Yeah, I would love to. <laughs> um, all right, so round two, surprising solutions. Okay, option A. In a double-blind study, whole-fat but not low-fat butter performs equally well on subjective measures of skin hydration compared to commercially available body lotions. Oh, God. Or it's option searing butter all over. Yeah, that's, so that's covering your body in butter is just as effective as lotion. Is option A. What? 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 So it's cover, covering your whole body in whole fat, but not low fat butter performs equally equally well on subjective measures of skin hydration compared to commercially available body lotions. Option B: Uncorking the muse. Alcohol intoxication facilitates creative problem solving. Or option C, long-term application of duct tape effectively reduces the appearance of cutaneous scars. Whoa. <laughs> so the last one is duct tape? Duct tape. <laughs> duct tape. Duct tape. If you put duct tape on a scar, apparently, 
can reduce the appearance according to this title, which may or may not be real. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. Not the last one. I mean, maybe if you add some silicone inside. Um, uh, the body lotion is interesting. <laughs> but I don't know. I think I'm always going to go with the, with, the, with the craziest one. Um, Okay, I choose again B. B. Okay, so uncorking the muse. Okay, so let's, I'll read you from the abstract of the correct paper. That alcohol provides a, a benefit to creative processes has long been assumed by popular culture, but the data has not been tested. The current experiment tests the effects of moderate alcohol intoxication on a common creative problem-solving task, the remote association test. Individuals were brought to a blood alcohol content of approximately 075 and after reaching peak intoxication, completed a battery of items, intoxicated individuals solved more items in less time and were more likely to perceive their solution as a result of a sudden insight. <laughs> <laughs> Results were interpreted, are interpreted from an attentional control perspective. So, yeah, so drinking alcohol yeah. makes you more creative, and, and apparently. Hence also, this show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, that's, that's also the reason. Like, that's why, actually, you start with a drink. <laughs> All right, so you're you're one for one, doing okay. doing pretty good. All right, pretty good. Okay, so the last one is an appropriate theme: babies. All right, so um, first choice A: canines outperform human infants in a modified Wisconsin card sorting task. B: detection of pre-defecatory rectosigmoid wave activity for prevention of fecal soiling in infants. That sounds useful. And then C: uh, babies with high food intake. Uh, have higher BMIs and produce more fecal matter compared to babies with low to moderate food intake. Okay, and the second, sorry, I didn't get completely. Uh, detection of pre-defecatory rectosigmoid wave activity. Wave activity. <laughs> <laughs> <For> prevention <laughs> of fecal <Recto> wave <laughs> That's a very specific type. type yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so they actually measure that? Yeah. <laughs> Somehow. I don't want to know how. <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> okay. Mm. And the first one was canines outperform human infants in a modified Wisconsin card sorting task. Okay. The suspense. <laughs> I mean. <laughs> okay. Mm. Okay. Let's choose A. A? Okay. Here's from the abstract. Identification of an electrophysiologic sign before defecation oh, that can was prevent <laughs> soiling in infants. To identify such a sign, the contractile activity of sigmoid colon oh, was recorded God. percutaneously, I can't even say these words, in 48 healthy infants. <laughs> Oh, wow. This is disturbing. Yeah, I didn't pick that because it's like, oh my God. <laughs> like the alcohol one. It's like, oh, seems man. painful. Jeez. Babies. Okay, well, I don't think I'll read the rest because it's kind of gross. But. Yeah. <laughs> but now you know. We can predict. <laughs> and this is the Journal of? Journal of, oh, it's Frontiers in Bioscience. Actually, that's, oh. yeah, here you can see. Pretty decent journal. Shafiq A and Shafiq IA. And Shafiq, everybody's the same last name. Yeah, there are three, three people are apparently related to each Shafiqs. other. <laughs> From 2006. Anyway, yeah. So good job. Still one, so yeah, one out of three. yeah, one out of three. That's not bad. That's not pretty bad, good. actually. No, trust, trust us. We get pretty creative with these titles. Yeah, we had a few that were like people got zero in a, in a row. So I think we're so we're improving. We're on the upshift. <laughs>
All right. Well, that's our show. Thank you so much for speaking with us today, Viola. Thank you very much. It was really a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. Brains and Bourbon is a production of Neurite West and KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. This episode was produced by Nick Weiler, ADE, and myself. Please visit us on Facebook to let us know what you think of the show by filling out our new survey. And you can find all of our past episodes of Brains and Bourbon, as well as our podcast Neurotalk, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org.